you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the and work now, of City on sons, a Hill, please listen to me. On a hill. Com. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favour from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Guy, for your invitation. And what a wonderful theme, that of wisdom. We are all children of God, and we need to learn wisdom from our Heavenly Father. Wisdom in the Bible, as you've already discovered, I'm sure, is personal, practical, and relational. Wisdom comes from God. It helps us to know ourselves, to live wisely, to relate well to others, and to relate well to the experience and joys, pains, struggles, and challenges of life, and to honor God, the giver of all wisdom. Wisdom is about our lived experience. And you'll be so well aware that the contrast all the way through the book of Proverbs is between wisdom and foolishness. And yet how infrequently we think about the need to be wise. Our priority is to be loved, to be successful, to be attractive, to make money, to gain possessions, to gain information, 
to work well. But the quest for wisdom is an unusual quest in our age. But in God's sight, a precious quest and a necessary quest. For without God's wisdom, we become fools. We find God's wisdom in the Bible, but we hear God's, uh, we hear the world's wisdom all around us every day. Uh, the little sayings by which people uh, rule their lives and make decisions. Uh, one I, I often hear is, charity begins at home, which has a certain sense to it. That is, you have to care for the people for whom you are immediately responsible, not ignore them and worry about people a long way away. Though, my, in my observation, charity begins at home often results in charity remaining at home. Or a great Australian saying of uh, yesterday was, good fences make good neighbours. That is, keep people at a distance. Whereas actually love in your neighbour makes rather better neighbours, I think. Uh, you are the most important person in the world. That's a comforting thought for a moment until you realise its futility and stupidity. And if you actually live that way, you're destined to become more and more selfish and to have fewer and fewer friends. My Irish grandmother had a wonderful saying, which she uh, obeyed all her life, which was, never trust a man whose eyes are too close together. <laughs> so if you had a narrow nose and eyes close together, you were basically untrustworthy. Well, my grandmother lived by this proverb early life, and it worked, that is, she was never betrayed by a narrow-eyed man. Uh, and, she, and in her final years, she was very proud of herself. She'd avoided narrow-eyed men and lived a happy life in consequence. Another one, uh, which you might know, is the many, there are many ways to skin a cat, which is really useful proverb if you ever want to skin a cat. But wisdom in the Bible, of course, we've look, we're looking at Proverbs, but uh, wisdom is actually a big New Testament theme as well. So uh, in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, we find this wonderful promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Isn't that wonderful to say that when we ask God for wisdom, he gives us wisdom without saying you should have asked for it before or didn't you need it last week or something like that? No, no. He's such a generous God that he gives wisdom to those who ask. And if you are wise people, you will be asking for wisdom every day. But in the New Testament, of course, wisdom is focused very closely on Jesus, his words and his cross. Everyone who hears my words will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, the floods came and so on, and the house stood secure. The foolish person is the one who hears Jesus' words and does not put them into practice. And the floods came and the wind uh, blows, yes, as wind does, and the rains come down and the house falls flat. So to think we can find wisdom without looking at the words of Jesus is a very big mistake. 
And according to the New Testament, the greatest sign of God's wisdom, the biggest act of God's wisdom, is the cross of Christ. Jews demand signs. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than wisdom. That is, even God on a bad day is cleverer than we are. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So to see in the Jesus Christ and him crucified the wisdom of God is to see true wisdom, the most perfect expression of God's wisdom, the most problematic expression of God's wisdom, but the most powerful expression of God's wisdom. For in the cross of Jesus, we find forgiveness for our parents, forgiveness for our children, forgiveness for ourselves. Now, one theme in both Old and New Testaments is the family as the place of wisdom, where you learn wisdom. The responsibility of parents to invest wisdom into their children. Not enough to love children, because your love needs to be wise love. And that is a challenge with every child, isn't it? To know how to love your child wisely. Money is not enough. Opportunities are not enough. Educational advantages are not enough. No, you need to invest wisdom in your children. A friend of mine decided that his 14-year-old son needed wisdom, so... He said, well, there are 31 days in the month. He was obviously a bright chap, and, um, except when there weren't 31 days. But otherwise, there are 31 chapters in Proverbs, so we'll read through a chapter of Proverbs a day. What a great thing to do for a parent to teach his children wisdom. And children are responsible to learn wisdom from their parents. That is, discerning good, healthy wisdom from what they say or do. Not either accepting everything their parents are without question, that would be a foolish thing to do, or absolutely rebelling against their parents and then thinking they're free. That would be a foolish thing to do as well. And one interesting feature of wisdom in the Bible is the combination of wariness and wisdom. If you've read through Proverbs, and I hope you're doing that at present, you'll know that again and again we're told to look carefully, to listen attentively, don't believe everything you hear, don't believe surface appearances, think carefully, be wary of, what, of the promises which people make to you. Think ahead to the consequences of words and actions and ways of life. Well, we heard some of those proverbs a moment ago. You might have wondered about 
start off children on their way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it? And wonder if that's always true. But Proverbs aren't saying what is always true. They're giving good advice about how to live and hoping for a good future. A friend of mine was uh, one of three boys uh, and uh, his two younger uh, parents were Christians. His two younger brothers lived as Christians. He gave up Christianity. Uh, But then he was converted at the age of 50 and then preached a few months later in his little church and preached on the Proverbs, start children off on the way they will go and even when they're old, they won't turn from it. But when we're reading about uh, the family in the Bible, we have to realize that family life has changed a great deal since Bible times. So let me just explain the big changes which have happened in family life, which will help us to understand uh, how to read the Bible and also how to make sense of contemporary family life. Let's begin with the first picture of family life. In the Bible, uh, families were bigger than uh, what we call nuclear families. Nuclear family doesn't mean it's about to blow up, by the way. It means that it's smaller than families in former days. Uh, And this was a large family with uh, grandma and grandpa and so on and cousins and uncles and aunts. But the thing was that family life was all the life there was. So parents and children in the same place and in the same place was home and work. So if you were a baker, if that was the family business, then mum and dad and uncle Fred and so on, they were all involved in the bakery and so were the children. If you were a farmer, then everybody was taking part in the life of the farm. There were no, there were no schools, so children weren't learning from anybody else. There were no televisions, no newspapers and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, nobody else had input into the family except father and mother, which is why there's such a strong focus on the responsibility of parents in Proverbs. So parents became the source of all teaching, education, training. They had sole responsibility for their children. And the home teaching was not just about how to live, but how to work, because you'd learn how to do your daily work which was the work that your parents did. That's a very different picture of family life from family life today. The next change that happened in the Greek and Roman era was the arrival of schools. And this was the first time that children had an external influence in their lives. And the school teacher uh, might of course, reaffirm the family values or might not, but he was the first time when a bit of the education of children was outsourced. There was a massive change brought about in the West by the Industrial Revolution, which some of you may remember if you're old enough. That was a joke, by the way. At the Industrial Revolution, what happened was a separation between home and paid work. That is, people were paid by uh, others outside the home, 
and it ended up that fathers went off to the mines or to the factories. So there was separation between the workspace and the home space. And at home, you would find the mother left to raise the children. Now, this has had a, a massive effect on the life of families in Western, uh, in Western countries and increasingly around the world. It meant that the father's job was to get money and to bring it home rather than wasting it on the pub on the way home. And the mother's job was not work, that is, uh, going to the factory to work, but to look, on, look after the children. So children became mother's work, not father's work. And, children, and churches were built in places of homes rather than work. That is, they were built in uh, residential areas rather than in factories. So they became less relevant for men and less concerned about work issues and more concerned about domestic issues, domestic life. And this view of family life is often assumed to be what the Bible teaches. It's not. It's actually what the Industrial Revolution created. It's not the family of model of family life in the Bible. So it says that mothers are meant to be at home, not at work. But in Proverbs 31, the wife, the mother, is busy making lots of money and good honor. And so we then read, misread Titus chapter 2, where Paul tells women to be busy at home. And we think that means that is not at work, but at home looking after the children. But actually, in Paul's day, in the Bible times, it meant back in the place of home and work together, helping to run the shop. So. Now, actually, some people still live at what, what, I, what, what I would be describing as a pre-industrial life. Often migrants live that way. And, of course, lots of indigenous people in Australia still live the pre-industrial life. That's one of their great strengths, as a matter of fact. But this view of the family, of mothers and fathers and their responsibilities, has had a big effect on evangelical Christianity in the 19th and 20th century. The next change happened in the 20th century when, uh, when women went off to work. Then often uh, father and mother were in paid work, either full-time or part-time. And then that left the question, who is raising the children? Who is spending time with the children? Who is investing in the children? Sometimes it was uh, grandparents hauled in for the day. But often the raising of children was outsourced to schools. But there's a kind of vacuum at home if both father and mother are away from home working, then there's no centre to the life at home. And that's a problem which I think remains unsolved in our society. But in the 21st century, the situation has got even more complicated. We may have the father and mother at work, 
and more and more input in the, into the children's life comes not from father or mother, but from school and from social media and from the friends, your, the friends you make and from government policy. And that government policy is profoundly, uh, and th this new way of thinking, this, this new voice about how families should function, indeed how people should function, is, is pervasive in schools and kindergartens and so forth, and it's also pervasive at work. And it has uh, four simple messages. Uh, the first one is, this is your life. That is, you have to be yourself. It's saying to the three or four-year-old, you have to be yourself. Self-expression is the most important thing you, f you should do, and anything which restricts your self-impression, your self-expression, is evil. Then it says, to do this, you must create your own values, your individual and personal values. And to do this, you have to oppose the values of your parents, your church, or the traditions of your society. And if you want to make an authentic choice, it'll be one which rebels against parent, church, and society, and forges a new way ahead. And the fourth thing this voice says and you must obey us in doing all of this. So it's your life. You make your own decisions, disobey everybody else, and obey us. Well, let's think about what this works out, how this works out in practice. It's your life. Well, it sounds it sounds so right, doesn't it? It sounds so sensible. It's your life. You have to live it. Well, yes, that's right, except that left to ourselves, we are automatically selfish. And if you express your selfishness, if that's your self-expression, then you will end up very isolated and very lonely and without the ability to relate to others. Because any human relationship involves some restriction on our selfishness, doesn't it? I remember when I was young, I decided to push the little boy next door off his bicycle to see what would happen. <laughs> there was no malice in it. It was a, a scientific experiment, I might say. Uh, he was an unpleasant child, no more than uh, other little boys are unpleasant. Anyway, I pushed him off his tricycle and he cut his leg and I was sent to my room for the afternoon and I learnt what happened. So there was no malice there, but you can't go through your life pushing people off bicycles and trams and trains just as a purely scientific experiment, can you? I mean, that's, that's not the way to build friends and win friends and influence people or get a job or do anything, really. It just confuses the transport system. And, if you're anything like me, you, what you want to express sometimes is anger and revenge and frustration and intolerance and pride. Well, my pride is legitimate because I happen to have a gift of infallibility. But, so, but for everybody else, it would be a very foolish thing to do. 
to be that, that proud. Yes, the expressive self is a dangerous way to live. But also, to say to a young child, you must create your own individual and personal values, is to put too great a pressure on a child. Imagine saying to someone who's four or five, let alone three or two, you know, create your own worldviews, your own moral values, the kind of things that philosophers grow old trying to work out. And you're saying to this little child, you create your own values, your own priorities, your own worldview. It's too great a pressure and too prematurely applied. It's actually, I think, a wicked thing to do to put that psychological pressure on a young child to say, be yourself, create your own worldview. And what it actually produces, of course, is intensely tribal behavior where no one has the confidence to be themselves. They're all seeing what their friends are doing and fitting in with that. It actually produces conformity to a group, to a tribe because no one actually has the nerve to choose their own worldview. And it produces the dangerous tribal behavior which is intolerant of all other tribes and treats other tribes as threats or enemies. And then how foolish to say that authentic choice for a child means necessarily opposing the values of your parents, your church, the traditions of society. And that only people who make, uh, make decisions contrary to everybody else are those who are making authentic choices. And yet that's exactly what is being said to children today and to adults as well. Of course, this demolishes the support and shared meaning of traditional tribal groups like families and churches and assumes that all their values are destructive. It's an immensely arrogant power grab, which, of course, includes the condemnation of all other power structures. And then the irony is, having said at the start, you have to be yourself. The final message in the package is, you have to obey us. We're telling you that the only authentic existence is to be yourself and to create your own values and to reject other people's values. But you must obey this. So the promise of freedom is actually a demand for slavery. Not a slavery of work, but a slavery of identity and value and of the whole of life. It is a totalitarian demand, an absolute demand. It promises individual freedom and imposes submission to a new tribe. It's going on all around us and it is deeply wicked. And what a painful situation to be a parent, as well as a painful situation to be a child. And yet, as we know from the New Testament, parents are instructed to raise their children. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, nurture and nourish them in the training and instruction of the Lord. And by the way, one of the results of the Industrial Revolution was that mothers became responsible for the Christian formation of the children and fathers gave up that job. 
And I'm always sorry when I see, when I see in a family uh, the Christian mother taking on responsibility for reading the Bible and praying with the children and the father not doing it. That's, that's awful. Fathers, do your job. Don't be a wimp. But we also find that lovely picture of Timothy in uh, Paul's letter to, to Timothy, the second letter. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and now lives in you, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, for faith in Jesus Christ. So parents are to resist these totalitarian claims and pressures. But you may say to me, it's a lost cause. Children are so influenced by the world around them. And our influence as parents is getting weaker and weaker. We just can't compete with the pressure of social media and friends and schools and so on. And government policies. Well, let me just assure you that Christianity is actually designed not only to survive but to flourish in totalitarian cultures. The Roman world in the first century was a totalitarian culture which demanded absolute obedience. And yet people were converted, became Christians and lived as Christians, and more and more people became Christians and churches flourished. And this is actually, uh, living in a totalitarian culture, is actually the normal Christian life for many, many of our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. If you live in North Korea or China or Russia or a Muslim country or a Hindu country, or if you live in an animist society and culture, then there's very strong pressure, a totalitarian pressure in a sense, against Bible values, gospel truth, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So my advice if your parents under pressure, and I suspect most of you are, is to get together with other Christian parents to share your experiences and ideas and strategies, and above all, to pray for your children. You might find some good books to read. You might ask uh, your ministers to find uh, some good resources for you in raising children. But I think one key is to remember that we don't live in a neutral world. The end of Christendom has not left a vacuum. Indeed, Jesus describes Satan, the devil, as a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44, whereas Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And the lies of the devil, the lies the devil has, has devised, abound in our world as they are also found many times in our churches. And we must resist them with the truth as it is in Jesus. Do you remember in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, protect them from the evil one. And I think we make the mistake of thinking we live in a neutral world in which there is no power of evil, no prince of this world, no 
prince of the power of the air. We don't live in a neutral world where being attacked, critiqued, subverted, seduced all the time by Satan. So listen to these words, parents, and apply them to your parenting. Apply these words to your parenting. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And when you've done everything, to stand. Parents, stand firm then with the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. There's a job description for parents. Your children are your greatest responsibility. So you must nurture your marriage and nurture your children. Invest in your marriage. Invest in your children. And if you're a single parent, then I recognize the pressures on you are even stronger. And the struggles you have are even more complicated. But try and get friends around you who can help you and encourage you and promise to pray for your children and care for them. There's another lesson from the Bible I want to get to in a moment, but let us now just pray for parents, including single parents. Father, we pray for those among us uh, to whom you've given responsibility and joy of parenting. Please help them to accept your gift as your gracious gift. Please help them to be thankful for the children you've given them. Please make them stable in your love for them so they can be stable in their love for their children. Please make them wise people that they may impart wisdom to their children. Please help them to live for your glory that they may show their children how to live for your glory. Please keep on teaching them from the scriptures that they may teach their children from the scriptures. And please help them to keep on bringing uh, joy to the Lord Jesus Christ in all that they do, that their children may learn to do the same. We pray this for all parents. In Jesus' name, amen. However, there is another lesson we can learn from the Bible that will help us as a church and as parents. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people are a nation made up of tribes, made up of families. But in the New Testament, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, are included, who aren't descendants of Abraham. And the expanded people of God now in the New Testament 
and not a national group, but the Church of Jesus Christ, not limited to people of a particular ethnic group, nation, tribe, or family. Now, the whole people of God, the Church of God, is described as God's family, God's household. So Paul describes God's plan in bringing in the Gentiles to join his people, as he says, as he says that his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity and in his body bring both of them to God through the cross. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and to those who were near. Consequently, you, that is you Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And God's household, the Church of Jesus Christ, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So the Church of Jesus Christ is the household of God and the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Or Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, I'm writing so you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, in God's house, his household, his family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So what parents provide is supplemented and enriched by what the whole church provides for children. And I hope that you as a church are committed to the children of this church, that you are constantly praying for them and willing them to serve them in any way you can. And I hope that you as a church are willing to support parents in their care of their children, that you're willing to pray for children and for parents as they care for their children. You see, the church is meant to be a place in which we all care for each other. Paul writes in Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Or Paul writes in Thessalonians, Encourage one another, build each other up, just in fact, as in fact you are doing. This is a ministry we all have to each other. This is what it is to be part of a church, not to listen to somebody up front all the time. That would be a fate worse than death. But to be equipped to be encouragers of each other. I hope that in your Christian life, you are an encourager of fellow Christians. And I hope in your life, you receive encouragement uh, support, strength from other Christians, encouragement to live, to follow Jesus, encouragement to live by the power of the Spirit, encouragement to live trusting your great Heavenly Father, encouragement to live shaping your life by the Scriptures. Churches are meant to be like that for everybody all the time. And that will, of course, involve us encouraging the young people and children among us. Together we can resist Satan. He is described in 1 Peter 5 as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
resist him standing firm in the faith. But in 2 Corinthians 11, he's described as disguising himself as an angel of light. Isn't that terrifying? So Satan is the father of lies. He's pumping out lies all the time into our minds. He's going around like a roaring lion looking for the next breakfast. But he's also disguised himself as an angel of light so that gullible Christians will be deceived and taken away from the apostolic gospel, from the scriptures, from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the word of God. Yet we read in Revelation 12 that we can triumph over him, over Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. There are no perfect families. There are no perfect parents. There are no perfect children. There are no perfect churches. Please don't aim at perfection. You won't get there. And please don't be angry with others if they're not perfect parents, perfect churches, perfect children. We all depend on the constant forgiveness and cleansing of our sins by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also always depend on the power of the blood of Jesus to defeat the power of Satan. Jesus prayed, protect them from the evil one. Let's echo that prayer now. Heavenly Father, protect us as a church from the evil one. Protect our children from the evil one. Protect our young people from the evil one. Protect parents from the evil one. Protect inquirers from the evil one. Protect new believers from the evil one. Protect old believers from the evil one. Protect our ministers from the evil one. Protect our church from the evil one. Rather than the lies of Satan, help us to follow Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and receive your pure and peaceable wisdom that we might live for your glory May we stand in your grace, live in your love, grow in your wisdom, walk in your ways, and serve in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.